As the kids are leaving, uh, we are going to continue our counterculture series with this um, strangely disorienting picture that we have that just doesn't feel quite right. And I love that the picture doesn't feel quite right because when you live out the Christ life, others in the world will look at you as if you were living a bit upside down. And so I'm excited to get back into that and and talk more about um, the second week of counterculture. Before we do that, I want to thank you um, as a church, as a community, as a people for being who you are, for doing what you do, um, for loving us the way you have. Uh, You may or may not know, this is a good thing, um, I'm officially in my second year as your pastor, which is super exciting for me. Yeah. So uh, year one came and went really quickly, um, and time flies when you're having fun, so I think we're okay on that. And so I wanted to share with you and um, celebrate with you some of what uh, God has done in this first year. And so we went in a season of healing, and we've moved into this season of shifting focus from being a sort of an inward, we got to just keep the ship afloat kind of place to an outward, let's go and explore and see how we can change the world kind of place. And in doing that, we've added 50 new members in a year. We have tons and tons and tons of new kids, so much that we added multiple kids' classrooms in a year. We baptized a bunch of people. We have community groups functioning all over the city, reaching out and blessing their neighbors. We have um, reflected this in some sense in the outside of the building. We had new parking lots uh, kind of paved and redone, and that sort of felt nice to park there and not lose your car in a pothole. But uh, that was just phase one. Greg is actively working on kind of that last 10% of a project to put signage up in the building and on the outside of the building that would actually help people who hadn't been here for 15 years understand what door to go in, where do my kids go, where's the bathroom. And so Greg is working on that, and we're closing in on the home stretch of getting that done. So you'll see it, and you'll go, hey, that looks nice. Uh, then even more than that, we've had so much growth, and, and you've experienced this in coming in and going out that we've actually been talking about reviving this plan uh, that was a plan 10 years ago and then five years ago and then three years ago to renovate and expand the foyer and actually give this place a little bit of a flow that helps us accommodate um, all of the extra people that are showing up every week. And so I don't know when that will be, but I just wanted you to know that as you've seen the church grow on the inside? Have you seen uh, personal growth and transformation as you've seen uh, new faces show up and new people join this family? Uh, there is an ongoing growing that's happening, and it is because of your faithfulness in service uh, that children come here and they do not go uncared for because you give up your Sunday to go and watch them. It is because of the faithfulness of your giving that uh, the budget is never in question, and because the budget isn't in question, we can live out the mission that we collectively adhere to. It is because of your praying that we would reach this city and the city would be changed and transformed by obedient lives. It is because of those things that uh, you and I are knowing Jesus and helping make him known in the city. And so I want to say thank you. Congratulations. Keep doing it. We got a whole long way to go and it only gets better from here. Okay? Okay. Counterculture. Who's ready? Me? I am. We occupy cultural Christianity. This is not a good thing. Uh, cultural Christianity has taken over. It takes over in any area where uh, Christian, Christianity becomes the dominant uh, religion of the land, which is to say that sort of it blends in with, with everyday practice. It blends in with regular uh, worldly culture, and, and pretty soon the two become indistinguishable. And so that's happened uh, in America a long time ago. We live a cultural Christianity, and we're invited every day by culture to continue to sort of sacrifice the bits of Christianity that, that we're called to in order to take on uh, the life of the greater culture that we live in. 
I talked to you last week about the stats that uh, Barna would say that Christians more uh, often than not look nothing uh, different than the world outside with all the major metrics of addiction or divorce or whatever they are. The things that where you go, well, I mean, Christians believe this, and yet our lives don't actually show any statistical differentiation as a group, which is to say that we have become um, culturally um, ubiquitous with non-believers. And so for these three weeks, what we're doing is attacking these practices that uh, may allow us to reclaim our countercultural identity and live uh, not at odds with the culture around us because we're trying to reach the culture around us, but live in such a way that creates a little bit of a disequilibrium to where someone would say, I recognize that, but it's not quite the same. And that's who we are called to be. We live in a win-at-all-costs culture. This is uh, what happens in capitalism. Our bottom line culture places winning above everything else. Our Bible clearly suggests another way. Social media reinforces this culture. It is a win-at-all-cost social life that you have. You better have the right house and the right family picture, and you better have the right job and go on the right vacation. Otherwise, you kind of feel like a loser because that family did this or this couple did that, and we don't match up to them, and so they're winning and we're not. We live in a culture of comparison. If, if better or worse exists, then somebody wins. When we base our lives on a comparison with others, then, then what is absolutely true, because comparing inevitably leads to someone is better and someone is worse, meaning someone is winning and someone is losing. Winning has trumped obedience in modern Christianity. As a pastor uh, around election time, I end up becoming more of a priest and the people come and they always want to confess to me things about election time. This year was no different. I had um, no small number of you come and confess who you voted for. The funny thing was, I, I didn't run into anybody who was absolutely in line with the person they voted for. Left or right, it didn't matter. People would say, you know what, I don't really agree with all of these things, but I think I need to do this so that we might win. The only exceptions to those rules were the people who voted for Greg Popovich and Tim Keller, and there were two people who voted for them, and so we applaud those people. <laughs> Election's not a totally fair uh, thing to draw, and it's not a great metaphor because it's a binary choice. There isn't really a whole lot else you can do with it. But when we make it about winning, what we have to do is, is suppress the inner conflict that comes up in us the moral indignation, the righteous indignation. We have to suppress that in order to be on the winning side. This is a series about reclaiming these countercultural pursuits and hopefully reclaiming some of our faith in the process. I said last week, these are sort of disciplines for surviving suburbia. And so if you missed last week, we talked about silence and solitude. And I don't know how much more quiet your life was this week. But for me, even having to say it out loud forced me to go, gosh, I can't turn it off. So what is the next discipline for surviving suburbia? It is this. Failure is an option. It sounds like a really great prosperity gospel sermon, right? Failure is an option. What if obedience means we don't win? What if doing the right thing doesn't make us richer or more successful or doesn't help us win the culture war or even mean meaningfully influence society? What if doing the right thing takes us out of the running to do those things? So we have to acknowledge that we do live in this sort of binary culture where we have a winner and a loser, that we have a, a, a results above all else kind of culture, that we have a bottom line culture. Uh, I will prove it to you in this very simple way. Some of you are going, well, I'm not sure you're totally with you. Here's how it works. 
Can somebody uh, just shout out, who is the fastest uh, human being, the fastest man in the world? Who is this? Usain Bolt, they said in unison. Who's the second fastest? (laughs) That was clever. I didn't see that coming. Nice. The guy who finishes after Usain Bolt. His name's Tyson Gay. He's an American, but you didn't know his name because he's not the fastest. He's the second fastest, which makes him the first loser. Right. Who's the richest man in the world? Bill Gates. A little less enthusiastic there. It changes the stock market. Bill Gates is still the richest man in the world. Good job. Second richest man. Nope. Nope. No. No. I'm not even listening. No is the answer. You know why the answer is no? Because you've never heard of a guy named Amancio Ortega. I don't know who he is. I don't know what he does. Is he South American? Is he European? I don't know. I just know that when Forbes came out with their list, he's the second richest man in the world. Or, compared to Bill Gates, a loser, right? A lot of you are NFL fans. You follow football. You like football. Sunday afternoons, you'll come in in your, your jerseys, and you'll go, and you'll grill things, and you'll watch things, and you'll have so much fun. Who was the NFL MVP last year? Oh. Like one or two people are kind of like, I think it was this. Who was second? Nobody knows. Who lost the Super Bowl 10 years ago? Nobody cares. It was the Bills every year for like 15 years, right? It's a bottom line culture. Are we, are we convinced? We care about who wins. And whoever doesn't win, you lose. Let's read from the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. That's Isaiah saying that. And he said, the voice said, Go and say to the people, Keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but don't perceive. Make, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes or hear with their ears or understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then I said, How long? O Lord. And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Up lifting Sunday. The prophet Isaiah has been called He's been called to this incredible mission. Who will I go? Who will go for me? Who shall I send? And Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, send me. This is the point where we tear out that part of the Bible and we hand this to missionaries. We go, go and do it. You're great. We stop after verse eight and we claim this is some sort of hymn of the willing. But look what God sent him to do. Preach to ignorance that leads to destruction. Your labor will, quote, render them insensitive and dull until devastated. That's what Isaiah has been uh, brought in to do. Preach to these people who will never, ever follow you, listen to you, hear you. I will destroy them and burn their houses to the ground. Aren't you excited? You said yes. Isaiah gets and goes, so the results are like salvation? And God says, no, devastation. Isaiah has an important job. He's a prophet and a truth teller. He's there to tell Israel of their sin. He's a foreteller of Jesus, the one who will eventually rescue them. And he was basically sent out 
to fail in any worldly sense? Would you be obedient to what God is calling you to do, even if every cultural metric would call you a failure? I used to send mission teams as part of my last job. I was uh, over two, 300 people a year that we'd send on these short-term mission trips, just like Natasha. And we'd say, listen, um, here's the measure of success. You signed up and we're going to get you to the airport. And from there, all bets are off. Because eventually there will be something that happens that means the team that is supposed to be flying to Mexico is actually never going to leave the airport because something will happen and the plane will get lost and you'll be sleeping there. And I said, the mission trip, guess what? You're on it already. We're all called to be missionaries. We're all called to be ministers. But secondly, your short-term trip begins the moment your feet hit the airport and whatever happens from there is cool. And so if you guys don't go and like start a revival somewhere on the other side of the earth, I don't care. Because our job is to be obedient and faithful to what he's called us to do, wherever he's called us to do it. And if that is in the international terminal of your local airport, cool. And they'd look at me like, what did I sign up for? To which I'd say, it's never happened before, but it will eventually. And so all the people would say, what are we going to do? I said, it doesn't matter. Where's our itinerary? There isn't one. You're going to show up with your hands open and be faithful. What does a success look like? You're here, aren't you? And that was really so difficult for people to walk into because they said, well, I don't want to give up a week of my life and pay this money and get on this trip so that I can be part of something and I can't even know if I was successful or, or failing at it. And I'd go, welcome to faith. You say, well, that's the Old Testament. What about Jesus and the disciples? Like they dominated, right? Luke chapter 9. He called the 12 together. Jesus did, and he gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. He said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. Don't even have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there, depart. And whenever they do not receive you, wherever they don't receive you, when you leave that town, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Jesus gives them power and authority. He gives them means and influence. Verse 5 is a very clear suggestion that they would not be received well, that the gospel would be rejected, and that they would personally be rejected. And he instructs them to shake the dust from their feet, which would be a very rude exit. Matthew 10 parallels this passage, so if you flipped over, you'd see it. What Jesus says is, don't go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans. Go to the Jews. Let's start there. And so when what you need to know and understand about this passage— is that dust shaking was practiced by pious Jews when they would leave a Gentile city or a Gentile encampment. The Jews who had Gentile dust on their feet, as they left that city, they'd get out and they'd shake the dust off their feet as a message to the Gentiles that says, we don't even want to associate with your dust. We're that different. So for someone to do that to the Jews would be radically offensive. For a Jew to do it to another Jew would be radically offensive. And what Jesus has instructed his Jewish disciples to do when leaving these Jewish towns that don't accept the word of the Messiah is to shake the dust from their feet, which is in essence saying, I am to you as you are to the pagans, which would not have been received really well. And yet... I don't think the message was actually for the Jews. I think Jesus gave the disciples this instruction for them. 
I think in leaving a Jewish town and shaking the dust from their feet, it was not a message to the people left in the town. It was for the disciples to remind themselves, I am not of them. I've been called out to something different. I've been called out to something greater. I've been called out to something separate and holy, and I am no longer like you. What informs us and what we're talking about today is that they were given instructions on how to handle rejection. Shaking the dust for the Jews who followed Jesus was a reminder that they inhabited an alternate reality from those that they came from. The same is true for us in this culture. You and I inhabit an alternate reality, an upside-down world as compared to the rest of the culture. Why would you give your money away? Like, if you give your money away and you put it in one of those black boxes— Think about this from the, the eyes of the culture. Once you've used up the tax benefit of saying giving to a 501c3, right? There is a, a tax benefit there. But to give one penny more, the culture would say, would be wasteful. Why would you do that? Invest it, grow it, use it. It's yours. You earned it. And yet, as believers, we collectively say, I'm going to live generously. And I'm not just going to put it in the black box. I'm going to put it with this organization and this missionary here and this person over there. And I'm, that's what I'm called to do. And the world would say, you're never going to get on that richest man in the world list that way. Failure, as best we can see, is a biblical option. So what has God called you to that might fail? What relationship has God called you to enter that might not end well? At a friend... Uh, for a short time, uh, a couple houses ago, inner city San Antonio, we lived in this uh, sort of a ghetto. And the guy uh, across the street and four doors down, his name was Frank. Frank lived in a house that had no, uh, really no windows and no door and no air conditioning. And that's sort of uh, a problem in Texas, right? Frank had uh, fought in the Iraq war, came back with a whole lot of uh, instability in his life. Was being treated for sort of the worst PTSD you can imagine, and was just in a shaky place in general. So we reached out. We get to know Frank a little bit. Uh, he goes into the hospital for a back surgery related from his combat injuries, and, and so we go visit him in the hospital. He doesn't know quite what that's about, so he wants to repay us, so he comes over and helps us paint our house one day. And I say, Frank, you know, what, what could we do to say thanks to you? And he kind of shrugs it off, and yet we know. And so to my wife's great horror, I send her to the carryout to buy a cigarettes and Budweiser. Because <laughs> that's what Frank is going to receive, is love. Hey, they're not judging me, they're, they're actually in this with me. So she does so, gains a really cool reputation as a pastor's wife. <laughs> and comes back, and we got this bond growing. And I'm like, Man, God, you've called me to this relationship with this guy, and this is not always easy. This is cool. One day he comes over and he says, hey, I got a job interview coming up. And I'm like, yes, we're getting there. We're going to get you fixed, bud. He says, but I don't have a car, obviously. I don't even have a front door, so a car's a little bit of a luxury at this point. Um, can I borrow your bike? I'm like, yeah, I have this really cool bike. It was a gift from someone else that was hand put together with all these custom bits and pieces. Really liked my bike. He says, can I borrow your bike? I said, yep. Give to him who asks of you the words of the Bible resonated in my head. As he walks down the driveway and takes a turn back towards his house, my wife looked at me and she goes, you're never seeing that bike again. 
I said, I think you're right. So I don't think he actually drove it home. I think he went right past his house and straight to the nearest pawn shop. A couple days later, I said, Frank, how'd the interview go? He says, great. Where's my bike? Oh, it's at my sister's house. I said, Frank, you can't do that because I know your sister. So I called her, and she goes, not at my house. That's at my mom's house. Got her number two, not at her house. Frank, if you'll tell me where the bike is, I'll go buy it back from somebody just to have it because I really like that bike. I didn't do anything with it. I don't know where it is. I don't know what you're talking about. We moved not a whole lot longer after that. I'd go by every few weeks, knock on his, well, curtain or sheet of plastic or whatever he had for a door that day and say, hey, Frank, you got my bike back yet? No, no, I'm working on it. And eventually, it just sort of ended. It was a relationship failure that cost me time and money and a bike. And from all I know, I'm not going to see what impact was made in his life. It was a failure to the point that he would now avoid me and so we didn't actually grow in a relationship, we broke it. Was that a mistake to go into in the first place? When we started community groups, one of the, the big questions people had kind of under the surface, the, the question beyond the question was like, yeah, but what if it's not a good one? Like, what if it's, it's a failing? What if people flake out or, or we don't mesh well? What if like our, our group doesn't get along real well? Or I don't know, like what if it just doesn't, you know, take off? And we have this idealistic idea of what a community group is going to be, that we're going to be, you know, best friends and build a treehouse together and everybody's going to memorize the Bible and we'll all be on mission trip. And it's like, hey, this is going to be so much fun. And then the first time someone flakes and then there's tragedy and then you don't meet for a month and everybody's like, I don't know why we're even doing this. We have this fear of underperformance in everything we take on. Like gather, share, bless is what we say. That's all we do in community group. Sometimes it's hard to gather, so you don't gather for a while. Okay. Sometimes people aren't really ready to share. That's okay. You'll get there. Sometimes some groups would say, hey, we haven't actually even blessed anybody yet. And you know what we'd say? Are you trying? Well, yeah, we're still talking about it. Yeah, we're still trying to meet together. And yeah, we're still, we go, good. You win. That's what God wants for you is effort. Community in this world where we decry the uh, trophy for every kid uh, culture that we live in, this is one place where Christianity blends with that culture nicely. Christianity is that sort of place where participation is the goal. A trophy for every kid, a trophy for every church member would be a great thing because participating in the life of the church is participating in the life of Christ, is participating in his ongoing mission. Not getting it right, but attempting it. So much of the Christ life is about being available for a time such as this, whenever that is. So we have to get comfortable with the idea that it's not our job to change hearts, but to simply engage hearts and pray for the Holy Spirit to work. The race of life is not about winning, but about running. The race of life is not about winning, but about running. God loves when we start. He cheers at life's hurdles, is proud when we finish the race, no matter our time. And for a picture of this, I would like to introduce you to Matt Woodrum. So watch this with me. School that really moved us. A little boy so determined to stay in the race, even when it looked like he couldn't make it any further. Timers, I'm going to just say go. You ready? It was race day at Colonial Hills Elementary School near Columbus, Ohio. Go. They were off. And right there at the back of the pack, 11-year-old Matt Woodrum determined to run with the rest of the class. Go, Maddie. 
but it wasn't long before Matt was trailing a bit. He had cerebral palsy and was told he didn't have to run that race, that he could sit it out. But Matt wanted it. Making his way around that track, his proud mom videotaping the whole thing. Suddenly, Matt starts to slow down, starts to struggle. And watch the left corner of your screen. Right there, that's gym teacher John Blaine walking toward Matt on the field. Soon, some gentle coaching right by his side. Come on, buddy! That gym teacher would stay right there the rest of the race. And then something else. Suddenly, his classmates begin to notice. And one by one, they start making their way toward Matt, too. The crowd swelling beside him. And so does their chant. Matt rounding that final bend, his entire class in tow, every step of the way, then his rally, teachers watching at the end, the cheers at the finish line. He did it. Afterward, his mother could hardly find him in the midst of all of his fans. A high five there and a hug. That race now going viral on the internet, and Matt told me just today on the phone what that moment was like that entire class behind him. It was tiring, but it really helped when my classmates and my coach and everybody swarmed me. It was really encouraging. Mom, who was there taping it all, and Dad, who saw it later, both so proud tonight. I couldn't have been more proud of my son. It was very heartwarming. Dad proud, and so are we. And in fact, Matt told me if he had to race all again tomorrow, he would do it for sure. 808,000 hits now on that video on the internet. What a picture. His parents cheering at every turn. His dad who says, I couldn't have been more proud. What a perfect picture of this life. As Matt struggled, his community jumped in, cheered him on. As Matt finished, there is applause. There is this well-done, good and faithful servant sort of moment that Matt enjoys. And you know what gets lost in that video? He got last place. He was a total failure. We don't see that. We see heartwarming, inspiring I would run through a wall for that kid kind of moment. And he got last place. He was a beautiful, glorious, world-inspiring failure in culture's terms. Who cares how long it takes? Who cares where you finish? Christian life is about obedience. It is about answering the call. It is about running the race. Life is then together is about cheering on those who are falling behind and ultimately about finishing faithfully together. Too many of us sit on the sidelines of life afraid of failing. Matt's coach said he could sit it out. Matt, you're not going to win this. You can just sit out. Don't worry about it. He refused. He says, I will run. We've imposed cultural values of winning and losing where they never belonged. So listen, you cannot lose at loving your neighbor. You cannot lose at caring for the vulnerable. You cannot lose at fighting for the oppressed. You cannot lose at cheering on your brother or your sister who is struggling or stumbling or ready to quit. 
You cannot lose at being a burning arrow of brilliant light of grace and joy and hope in a world awash in darkness. You are adopted sons and daughters of Jesus. You cannot lose because in him you have already won. We are saved. We are free. And so we are able to risk it all in this life to run the race that God has put in front of us. Church, we have chosen the wrong dichotomy. Life as a believer is not a game we win or lose. It is a race we either run or we don't. What is it that God has called you to? What is your race to run? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the picture, even today, of what it means to run with uh, faithfulness. God, I would confess that uh, it's too easy to get caught up in a winning or losing, in measuring and weighing whether or not some action has the most efficient results possible. Father, I pray that we would be a faithful people. God, that we would be a people that are not focused on winning. Winning our culture, winning our neighbor. God, that we would be focused on obedience. Father, if we're faithful, we're faithful to subvert this culture. God, may you turn hearts back to you. If we're faithful to display you to our neighbor, to our coworker, to a family member, God, we pray that the Holy Spirit would use that display and draw hearts back to you. I pray that we would be a here-I-am sort of people. God, that we would be a shake-the-dust sort of people. Father, that ultimately we will be a community of people that lives together, that cheers each other on, that lifts each other up, that encourages and runs and finishes together. So, Father, I pray that you would, for each of our hearts, uh, illuminate that thing that we're hesitating to do, that relationship we're hesitating to enter into. What is that thing that you have called us to that is counter to everything in us culturally? And yet, Father, you want to work through that. Pray that that would become clear to us and that we would be obedient simply to run for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.